Hello, everyone. This is Natalie Pace, and thank you for joining me today. I'm so honored on Leap Year 2024 to be featuring the founding members of the Synergia Ranch Collective. They built Biosphere 2. If you were to build it today, it would cost over a billion dollars. They planted a rainforest in Puerto Rico. They built their own ship and sailed it around the world. They own an art gallery boutique hotel in London. They also have wastewater to potable water projects around the world. So how has this small, incredible group of individuals stayed together for half a century and achieved such glorious feats? And as importantly, what kind of lessons can they teach us that we can apply to our own lives? All this and more, be sure to share this with your friends, how to create a billion dollar partnership with the founding members of Synergia Ranch at youtube.com forward slash Natalie Pace. Okay, so as I said um, in my introduction, I'm really honored to be featuring some of the original members uh, that were have been there since the inception, since Biosphere, Heraclitus, all of the wastewater to potable water projects, rainforest projects, uh, art gallery and boutique hotel in London. It's really incredible what this small group of individuals have achieved. And I've asked them to join us because I want to see what we can learn from them about creating lasting partnerships, about um, creating big projects and making them come true. And um, so this is Deborah Parrish Snyder. And um, thank you, Deborah, for being with us. And she is in charge of the Synergis Synergia Press. Synergistic Synergetic. Press. Synergistic Synergetic Press. And this is Mark Nelson. He's an original biospherian. He's also got a PhD. Um, he'll tell you more about what that's all about. And um, I would say that probably a lot of that came from the direct experience of spending two years in a closed environment where they had to recycle all of their water and create their own drinking water. So there's a lot to learn from these individuals in addition to take a look at um, you know, the biosphere too and learn more about that. But again, it's not my projections. The University of Arizona has calculated that it would cost more than a billion dollars to create the biosphere today. So um, this is a billion dollar partnership. You guys had big dreams and you achieved them. And as we can see, they're still, they're still operating these big dreams. All right, that's enough from me. We're gonna start with Mark and Mark, you can go ahead and share your screen okay. and let's get started. Everyone can see that, I hope. Yes. All right. Uh, yeah, so this will be a little bit of an introduction. Uh, as Natalie was saying, uh, we were working for 20 years, even before we closed Biosphere 2, really working from the ground up, uh, not thinking of a billion dollars. Our goals were greater. Can we uh, shift history and change the way people think of and interact and especially live with our global biosphere and local ecosystems. Yes. So the Institute of Ecotechnics, we began our work in 1969 and our, our modest goal was to harmonize the worlds of ecology and technology, start a new discipline. This almost seems like common sense now. Well, it was common sense then. And our starting presumption was that 
a group of eclectic people with varied backgrounds from the arts, the sciences, explorers, adventurers, uh, people who didn't fit in any particular box, that we could do much better than business as usual. And we took it as our task to start projects in challenging areas that are under assault both economically and ecologically. And the two crises often go together as kind of a test of our understanding. So we started, and I'll kind of run you through uh, a series of quick photos so you get an idea. And learning by doing, well, I mean, we started with very little money and we still operate with surprisingly little money. So we had a little modest uh, idea. Let's make $1 do what $10 does in a conventional organization. And part of that is innovating. And part of that is, and here's where half the fun is, learning by doing, actually getting stuck in building buildings, building a ship, uh, supervising uh, the building of a mini biosphere. And this was the bleak first test project. This is in Santa Fe, uh, the current home of the Institute and Sunagir Ranch Organic. Uh, and it looked pretty much like this. And I'm a New York City and New England educated kid. I had never seen anything that looked worse. You knew that ecological crimes had happened here. And they happened in a really short period of time. And we took our simple goal. Let's make this desertified ecology into an oasis. So we planted thousands of trees, uh, made hundreds and hundreds of tons of compost, made 30,000 adobe bricks, built a geodesic dome. We became friends with Bucky Fuller in the process. And it's a little bit of a look of what the ranch looks like now. The next challenge, let's, if we're gonna really be global and operating on planet earth, 70% of it is ocean. So let's build ourselves a research ship. Well, if you have a lot of volunteers and little money, doing it with ferrous cement is a really great alternative. And we want, you know, uh, we really believe in synergy, which basically means making systems that run against entropy, that that combine the best of many worlds and come up with unpredictable products. So this was also a synergy of modern ferrous cement for the the hull and deck of the ship. But we went to Chinese junk sails as the best way of of uh, of operating a sailing ship. And in the 40 years since the Heraclitus was launched, it's actually gone further than here to the moon and back. It's gone up the Amazon, around the tropic world. It's circumnavigated South America, currently in a very exciting rebuild for another 40 years in Catalonia. And we are in the midst of, a, a, of another fundraising to get the final money needed to put it back in, in the water. Uh, this is a project that both Deborah and I spent a lot of time out in. In the mid 70s, we started two projects in the tropical savanna. This is way up in the north northwest part of Australia, a huge region called the Kimberley, which had seen ecological devastation similar to that of the southwest of the U.S. And in our 40 years of operation there, we had training programs. It's a heavily Aboriginal uh, society. And because we offered them working with horses and cattle, we actually got their attention and worked with a lot of schools and 
really increase their graduation work. And like uh, the ranch, our idea was let's really, you know, restore the savannah to the the beautiful idyllic places is probably where mankind evolved and why we like open spaces with beautiful trees. A look of the uh, the jewel of a of a pasture land that we created. We also wanted to work in in uh, the rainforest. Our ship had spent two years up in the Peruvian Amazon from eighty to eighty two, and we saw firsthand both the riches of the rainforest and the merciless assault and deforestation. So we picked a project in Puerto Rico, which, despite its forests, imports almost all of its wood to demonstrate that secondary forest can, can be sustainable for forestry. It's now considered fairly, fairly useless. So on about one third of a thousand acre mountain rainforest uh, land area, we planted 40,000 tropical forest trees and a spinoff enterprise, Puerto Rican Hardwoods is now reclaiming timbers and restarting a wood industry in Puerto Rico We've totally changed the attitude of Puerto Ricans and instilled the pride in their forests. As, as Natalie was mentioning, we're modern ecologists and we also don't believe in segregating art and science. So we wanted to have a project in a world city. We picked London as a great echo hub and right in the middle of Bloomsbury, right down from Russell Square, if you know London and 10 minute walk to the British Museum, we found a sort of decaying old church orphanage school, beautiful courtyard that we made into a garden. And we decided to showcase the cutting edge artists, the really creative artists from cultures around the world and get them out of the box of being just considered ethnic art. So we invented a term, we like to do that. Uh, this is the transvent guard. And a lot of our artists, you know, we have touring exhibitions a lot, of, a lot of our artists are in the, Brit, in the British Museum and in other very, very high-level uh, institutions. Our conference center and also our Mediterranean biome was just out of Aix-en-Provence. And in addition to our field work and the ground truth of doing that, uh, starting in the mid-70s, uh, the Institute began pulling together small but really creative groups of scientists, artists, thinkers from different cultures to consider really pressing topics. And we probably held about 25 of these conferences with Biosphere. We held a number of Biosphere workshops and international meetings on biospherics and closed systems. And we got to meet some of our heroes that way as well. This is uh, Bill Dempster, who is a system engineer for Biosphere 2 with Bucky Fuller. And we needed a huge network because making Biosphere 2 was an order of magnitude more challenging than anything we had done. It was a beautiful synergy of uh, modern and tribute to ancient architecture. And uh, it also required a intelligent integration of the people and technology with the biosphere. So there's a guy named Vernatsky who is a pioneer of thinking about the uh, biosphere and the problems. And he said, our next stage is the noosphere when we use our intelligence to regulate our human activities and harmonize with the global ecology. 
Pfizer two is the perfect echotechnic laboratory. And one, you know, just here is just a few of the highlights we could go on forever about about its accomplishments and, and what uh, it it uh, achieved. But our agriculture, and I've been an organic farmer, I still am an organic farmer. Our agriculture, half an acre produced 85% of the food for the first two-year closure and then 100% for the second closure. And we did it, but without using any chemicals whatsoever. So even things that are allowed in organic agriculture, we couldn't do because this was planned to be a 100-year experiment. And we wanted to safeguard the, the health and purity of the soils, the air, and the water in this, in this system. Some of the great hands-on uh, producing this food was, was really amazing. We ate like kings. And we also developed environmental technologies. We're really concerned about the buildup of trace gases. And we discovered and worked with a, a German professor at the University of Arizona using soils and plants to clean up air. This was a commercial project, a product that got aborted by the takeover, but that is not just a landscaping plant. Underneath is an air pump. So all of the air of an indoor space, whatever the outgassing is of people, materials, machines will go through there. And like any good ecological system, the soil can detoxify things. We had a lot of very groundbreaking research. Uh, people probably will remember that we had a decline, a mysterious decline in oxygen that we're able to solve, but we're able to study people with restricted oxygen, but no change of altitude. We also, and this is myself being examined by our in-house doctor, Roy Walford, who is a world expert in restric restricted calorie diets. So we were like the best test test subjects. So we were a bit hungry, but we actually came out much healthier. People said we couldn't build these mini biomes. The Biosphere 2 coral reef was probably the, the crown achievement, that, that the mangrove and the rainforest, but the coral reef was actually used by Columbia University. And actually people cite this as the first studies showing what global climate change is is doing to coral reefs around the planet. The wonderful experience of being uh, a biosphere in. News flash to your listeners. I hope you realize that you are all biospherians. That's why we chose the term. But we were inside a closed system and we actually had to figure out how do you become a biospherian? What do you do? How do you support your living world? It was an amazing experience. Uh, the the re-entry was seen by hundreds of millions of people around the world. And, and this project from 91 to 94 was before the internet. But the world really caught up because I think people hunger to understand the biosphere and the human place in it. And very quickly, I got inspired. Uh, I was the sewage manager of Biosphere 2. This was the constructed wetland. And after Biosphere 2, I went and got a master's and PhD in environmental engineering and started to bring these systems to the world, working with Biosphere Foundation and now the Institute of Ecotechnics. And just some pictures. So just get out of your mind what you think of as a sewage treatment plant. These beautiful uh, assemblages of plants are not just a beautiful garden. 
they're actually treating the water to higher standards than high-tech systems. And we've built them in 14 countries now. Our current project, which has just begun this year, is to treat uh, in southern Iraq the, the wastewater from 10,000 marsh Arabs and turn it into a beautiful oasis in the marshlands. Shout out to some of the books. Two of these were published by Synergetic Press that Deborah heads. The Wastewater Gardener, I'll just say it's the funniest book you will read about ship recycling, which is, uh, it's got its funny parts. It's a really serious issue of misallocated resources. And then uh, Biosphere 2 is really worth a deeper dive. I published Pushing Our Limits with the University of Arizona Press and uh, Synergetic Press just brought out a second edition of Life Under Glass. And our operating assumption was we would create wealth, but real wealth, because we would be restoring ecosystems and showing people that there is no conflict between economics and ecology. So the approaches of ecotechnics and biospherics, the true science of how we live with a biosphere, it's how, and I love that now sustainable has become passe. We don't want to just sustain our world because there are a lot of bad bad features of it. We need to regenerate and we need to regenerate ourselves and the living world we live in. And with that, I'll turn it over to my dear colleague, Ms. Snyder. Okay, can you stop the screen share real quickly? Sure. Well, thank you for that. You always, uh, I always learn something new whenever I hear you talk about the projects and uh, we have been at it for quite some time. I met Mark in 1981, I believe, at that conference center in Southern France. And it led, uh, I have had since that time, a lifetime of adventures and uh, not uh, no small adventures in Australia. Uh, but here now we're living in New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I'm gonna share my screen uh, just briefly to, uh, uh, show you, let's see, we want to view this from the current slide. Um, what are we doing now? Um, because, you know, you get tired after 50 years and I uh, need to have the young people need to come along. So um, we've got a, a young agroecology complex that is building up in the New Mexico community. It's quite exciting to watch. Uh, whole rewilding coalitions, uh, visions of landscape scale restoration projects underway. So uh, the woman on the right is uh, John Allen, our visionary founder of many of the projects, uh, my partner and colleague of Marx for many years, uh, co-author. Uh, that's his daughter who has a double PhD in biology and she understands biospherics like nobody else except for maybe some of these, uh, the senior citizens here. So uh, we are really looking forward to building. She's just based herself now in New Mexico after studying in Europe for uh, a decade and, and doing research there uh, for the next decade. So we're looking forward to uh, some landscape scale restoration here on the hundred acres that we have in New Mexico, Santa Fe, small retreat center. Um, okay, and then the other big thing that we're doing, whoops, is Mark mentioned the Heraclitus, uh, our ocean biome. So this, our ocean biome project has been in dry dock for a decade. Uh, it was slowed down by 
um, the uh, magnitude of the reforming re re of the, the hull. We did have to replace almost 90%, if not more, of the hull, which was not expected at the time. Uh, 35 years, a ferro-concrete ship, uh, 270,000 miles around the planet. There it is on the left. And now, uh, a decade later, working with MAPE, a ferro-concrete uh, uh, company, uh, with one of their latest, greatest environmental concrete mixes has uh, reformed and the entire 84-foot hull of the Heraclitus now, and it is completely ready for being sealed and uh, getting back into the water. So it's a gigantic undertaking, and now we're doing that next uh, final phase of fundraising to um, uh, raise what is needed to get this back into the water. And if I stop my share, I want to share another screen, Natalie. So I think if I mm -hmm. share another, then I have to stop the share and come back to here, share again uh, the screen that I want, which is this one. So the mission, why, why, why go through all of this? Lots of people asked us that question. Uh, why not just buy a new ship? <laughs> so, uh, Heraclitus is a very special ship. It's, uh, it, it, it can go into remote cultures. It can go up the Amazon. It can go into, uh, in the, into um, the island cultures and coastal cultures and, and uh, uh, interact in ways that uh, some other kinds of more um, institutional type uh, ships uh, can do. So it's got a special ability to interface with cultures and it and it goes to all these remote places because we want to go there. So we're going to we're doing citizen science uh, and uh, also doing hopefully allying with organizations that have got some actual ocean restoration technologies and uh, that uh, can be applied so that we're actually not just observing the ocean biome, but also helping to uh, regenerate it in some places. And there's some very interesting echo tech that's coming up in, in these in these fields. So we're working on right now finishing the ship, getting it back to the water, and then taking it to uh, and developing the educational programs. We have some organizations now developing marine ecology educational programs. We're looking at a small mini film series. Uh, that would be live from the Heraclitus as we go out to these remote places. And then up we, we now with current technologies are not going to be such a remote research ship because we can access satellites and we can share the story. So we are the eyes on the ocean and uh, we expect to be back in the water uh, sometime next fall and heading to Colombia. We've been doing uh, cultural oral history throughout uh, the, the last decade before we took the ship out of the water. Uh, so we'll continue with that documentation work. And uh, there's collaborations with wastewater gardens, uh, other education, the Greenhorns are developing some educational programs with us. So we're looking for allies um, and uh, working on a film documentary that is being uh, produced right now to showcase the 50 years, the legends of the Heraclitus and uh, make it a little bit more known. So um, I'm going to stop sharing my screen right now. Yeah, this is it. We're going to go do, we want to go from Mediterranean to the to Colombia, spend a few years there, a couple years there, maybe go up to the Caribbean, get back to the Amazon. And uh, we're also open for uh, suggestions from uh, people and, and we would take adventurers and explorers on board and students. So um, uh, that is 
that's the ship project. So there's a really exciting future for the ship that's happening right now. And uh, uh, I want to go on there, but that's yeah, that's just not enough to keep us satisfied. No, 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 no. We have to have uh, our rainforest project in Puerto Rico, which is uh, uh, really look in in uh, a fantastic uh, place where it's educating a lot of the island about and 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 students that come there about uh, a small rainforest project and uh, the, and wood. Um, Mark, do you want to say a little bit about the educational program that are at Las Casas? I think you mentioned briefly. Uh, a, a huge number of uh, both Puerto Rican and international and U.S. schools and colleges and students there for hands-on experience with the rainforest. For about 15 years, we had groups from Earthwatch Institute, and we were able to document thousands we measured thousands and thousands of trees and now we've seen this project survive two hurricanes hurricane maria and hurricane fiona the spin-off enterprise has, has gotten a, a very large grant from the u.s forest service and now they they have sawmills that can produce 10 times more wood and we're kind of revolutionizing the reason we went to puerto rico is it is the fastest reforesting country in the world and still imports 99% of its wood from Canada and the U.S. Now we have some kilns. We're going to kind of reverse that and, you know, share the wealth of Puerto Rico in the island and, and around. So it's a really exciting project. And, you know, so all of our projects are open to volunteers and they have a great experience. I, and I should mention, you know, one of the reasons I know that Deborah and I and, you know, Johnny had the vision to start this is we try to live balanced lives and we incorporate art, theater, enterprise and ecology, you know, so we are not an academic uh, bubble. And one of the reasons for making our, our projects enterprises is that, you know, puts us in contact with reality with dollars and cents and, and making that. And I think a new frontier is to expand our education, both hands-on and digitally. We have alliances with similarly minded projects in Catalonia, Brazil, and Argentina, the uh, Academy Biosphere. Yes. Well, so that's 700 acres. The homestead is up here and the eye of the hurricane did go right across um, that area. We're looking at hurricane proof, uh, uh, hurricane ob observation uh, <laughs> structure was one idea. Uh, 700 acres of wilderness watershed uh, that comes through here in the plantation itself of about 40,000 uh, trees were planted back in the early 80s and that would eventually is starting to have early harvesting uh looking at you know the actual um harvest of the uh product after so many years uh wastewater gardens is something that mark also has really developed and i think you mentioned already but that's there's 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 potential for that one to actually take hold you know maybe that technology will can be used throughout the um, Middle Eastern Basin over there, they where uh, the wastewater garden demonstration project is being built after 12 years in southern Iraq. You know, gets you know, it takes one. We like to work with the idea of a tincture effect. So if you can, these demonstration projects, it's like okay, here, like on the left here, this is a half moon wastewater garden. That's in Crescent. Algeria, right? Crescent moon. 
Yeah, yeah, crescent cute. moon, and, and it's part of a techia. The the um, artist ecologist that brought Mark there uh, wanted to revive, re rebuild his tech the techia, the, and um, and so this was done both in a culturally sensitive artistic way as well as functional way. So and that is where so and then Bali uh, and then and then uh, Iraq. Um, well, the other thing that so what do we do with all of that? How do we share these experiences? How do we um, package the knowledge. Uh, I have been running a parallel line along this way uh, while we while working on these projects of a small publishing company called Synergetic Press. Synergetic uh, Press is more than- Can you hear that? Yeah. Books, both print and digital, are only part of our mission to promote mindful discussion of humankind's present and future lives- This is 30 seconds. To this planet. The roots of the press extend back to the early activists who formed the Theater of All Possibilities in San Francisco in 1967 and the Institute of Ecotechnics in 1973, collectives that fused the values of the arts, ecology, and enterprise. So just to give you, so we've been around for a while and um, uh, I'm going to stop the share right now and show you some of the books that I've done over. So I've, this is my 40 year anniversary of being of running Synergetic Press. Um, this is actually we publish books on both ethnobotany, uh, plant medicine, but a big line in ecology. Uh, this is somebody that we recently published uh, from California who is looking at how can we how can we show people in suburban America how they can rewild their backyards? I mean, imagine all of that, you know, territory being used in ways. So this is a like a handbook, but it's 20 years of his experience. And we go in, you know, and we really try to make these are we're a trade book publisher. Uh, it's taken us a while. Uh, I would call myself describe the enterprise something close to a 35 year startup, but um, it's been an incredible process. So I would publish, now we're publishing about five, six or seven books a year, but this was the first, the publication I first did with Richard Evan Schultz. And back when ethnobotany in the eighties, late eighties, nobody knew what this was. And this is, you know, way before the, the, the um, uh, Renaissance on psychedelics started. Just Schultz just had an article in the Boston Globe today about having been a pioneer in psychedelic studies because he was doing ayahuasca in the fifties and six in the and forties and fifties with the um, Amazons, uh, the uh, uh, in a remote part of the Amazon. So, so ethnobotany has been an important part of our books, and then we also have done the biospheric publications. So we made we made books from these experiences, not all of them, but I mean these are trade books. John's memoir. Uh, I made a, a discount coupon for your uh, your your members for the Synergetic Press. You can get 20% off if you want to order from us. And uh, this is the famous Wastewater Gardener book that we did with Mark Nelson. And it goes into a lot of the history. He's a great prolific writer, history of the ranch, building Synergy Ranch back in the early 70s. He planted 800 trees in this barren windswept soil. And, uh, you know, it takes, it takes time. It takes time. Change, real change. Um, uh, said Ruth Bader Gin, uh, Ginsburg. It takes happens. is always a great mantra. It seems impossible, but what if it takes? 
And I think, you know, they, they said the Bicer 2 was 50 years ahead of ahead of its time. But the times are really uh, rapidly catching up. They're really catching up. So, you know, when we say, oh, Biosphere 2 was our modest attempt to show people what a biosphere is and show people how technology and humans could actually coexist peacefully, they get it. And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said uh, something that always stayed with me, that change, real change happens one step at a time. I'm always in a hurry. I'd like to see it do, <laughs> happen right away, but uh, you know, this one, uh, the, the, that two, this, we're still mining the, the, uh, the lessons learned from Biosphere 2, which was now uh, 30 years ago. And, and it's just been really, uh, once you start to think, once you see the biosphere, the atmosphere, the different layers of life in the 70 miles of life that we have, uh, around the surface of the planet. Once you see the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the soils, the animals, the plants, all of these interactions, and you can see that like visually, then you can never go back. It's true. It's true. It's very powerful. Do you um, do you want to? Can we show John at the end? Would that be okay? Can we have a little conversation and then show him at the end? Yeah, um, I'll put that to play at the end as a little bit of a poignant conclusion. Yeah, and I do encourage you guys to stick around for that because John Polk Allen, known fondly as Johnny Dolphin, um, he had, he's what, 95 years old now you were telling me, Deborah? Just about, in May. And, um, you know, he's, it's so funny because I came out to visit you and he, he, he described himself as an Oki, right? And then he goes on to Harvard, gets his, uh, an MBA, comes out, attracts all of this collective, brings in the money and, fi you know, finds the way to make a Biosphere 2 Heraclitus. You know, he was the steerer of the ship, but he could not have done it without you guys. And that's part of the thing I want to talk about. I mean, um, you know, I, I think the vision is super important because it provides an aegis for everybody to think through. Um, and I know that you guys know that. So what do you think was the magic of John's vision that helped, was so powerful that it inspired you guys to come into the group, to create your own projects, and still here we are, half a century later, still doing it? I, th I think, you know, there are many answers to that. But certainly one that always, when I reflect on, you know, John as a human being and as a charismatic leader, he was to a fault someone who saw your potential. And he, you know, set up conditions that would challenge that and encourage you to exceed what you are currently doing. And you know, it's what the reason, and, you know, I used to have a, an exercise every few months. Oh, this is really interesting, but shouldn't I go and do something else? No, it was endlessly interesting. And we always ratcheted up. Johnny was really great about, you don't just level off. And we, because we cho chose these challenging um, projects that nobody had done, there wasn't any book to follow. You were writing the book. And he also had a great attitude about making mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you are not trying anything new. Question is to weed out people who are making stupid mistakes and the same ones over and over.
but you know, the, that's why the projects really had a spiral to them. And the other thing, I love history. Johnny is a master, a polymath of all fields, but he also really showed the historic potential of doing something in a different way. You know, you brought up something and Deborah, you know, both of you, I really want to hear from you because I know that both of you have longevity in this project. You brought up something like not everybody is cut out for these kind, this kind of structure. So right. what do you think the attrition rate was, you know, approximately? And is there a loving way to understand that people are not a good fit and for, to release them with love? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I mean, it, you know, there, this was a self-selecting kind of the enterprises were self-selecting. I mean, in the sense that, you know, you showed up and you ha had what it takes. And then um, if there was a failure, then, you know, you could either reinvent yourself or if, 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 if there wasn't most people, you know, uh, re left uh of their uh, after having experiences and continue to remain friends uh and circle back around they started their own projects i would say the attrition rate i don't know mark out of 200 people maybe 50 percent or something i mean that are not connected anymore in some way yeah you know probably but i i do, I do want to emphasize and i think we always discuss that people would come and you know i mean we humans are pretty resourceful uh, survivors of 4 billion years of evolution. People would come even subconsciously and they'd come until they got what they needed. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah. you know, the guy who started a pottery here when we we're all into artisan handicraft, you know, he married a French volunteer that we had and he's off mm -hmm. in France being a successful potter, you know, yeah. so people, you know, pe people may have left, uh, working directly with us but i you know first off it was so tumultuous and exciting that i think everybody who especially the first 10 oh the first 25 years any you know anyone who was part of that kind of had a great base of how to deal with a wide variety of people and challenging projects and it doesn't really matter that they didn't stay directly with the institute or or with right. theater. I mean, some people launched off in a theater direction. So here's another question then. And this is uh, something we talked a little bit about. So I know that you have really good, strong answers for this. So you have all these different individuals, you have all these various projects and different individuals are kind of spearheading different projects, right? So right. Um, how do you, what's the corporate structure that you set up? And why does that structure work better than another structure might? Um, I can answer that. Uh, we, John, having gone to Harvard Business School, was a uh, you know super study. He was a super student, so you know he understood the value of corporations, and he understood what you could do with the if you own the means of production and. Um, uh, you know, the economists that really, you know, got across uh, the ideas about land, the ownership, you know, how, how important the value is of land. So John was putting together an economics in his own mind that was a synergetic idea about how to take the best. He also, you know, read Karl Marx, you know, he read every single school of thought on economics that there was. So what we have is basically a synthesis of that. It's corporations, corporate structure to manage things. You have a board, uh, you have shareholders, 
Uh, we have nonprofit structure for certain types of things. And, uh, uh, but you would have these missions that didn't necessarily drive some kind of huge return on investment or some kind of, you know, I mean, the land, the investment in the land was basically the return on the investment because land values tend to go up. So um, the economics were live on, live on the property. So it was like how to do more with less. So you had managers the, the, uh, that lived on the property and didn't have to commute to work every day. Um, so you're reducing your footprint. This is all before we ever said the words footprint. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, what am I missing? And then that, that it would be about the economics. It would be uh, not, we're not trying to profit maximize, but we need to obviously make profits. And right. then, but that it would be, I would describe that what we call these kinds of organizations now are for benefit corporations, right? Um, which uh, is more like what we were. And we were able to actually, as a corporation, get tax relief in Australia, uh, as though we were an educational institution uh, in yeah. consideration of those kinds of the missions of the projects, even though they were held by for-profit companies. So um, does that give a little bit of an idea? Hugely yeah, valuable, but go ahead, Mark. I just want to throw in that also uh, mixing for-profit and non-profit entities, for example, in Puerto Rico, we have a spin-off enterprise as a straight up, you know, wood in industry, but they're doing a lot of education along the way, but, but but we also have a Puerto Rican nonprofit research and education foundation, and you know I think John really understood because we were starting new projects, you know they were all had a great deal of risk to really diversify so that you know and and a lot of the the great ideas and and early businesses you know faded away, that you wouldn't capsize the boat because there would be so many different entities and that mix of nonprofit and for-profit. I just yeah. want to, yeah. That was really the, important because each project had its own corporation. There was not like one big massive corporation that held, uh, well, there's one uh, now, but uh, yeah, that, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was just gonna say, cause I'm pretty much translating from John, it's really great idea because you have to translate into uh, dollar speak, you know, that's how the world operates, yeah. you know, so, so he sort of emphasized, well, that's the bottom line. And, and now we know, you know, classical economics, which unfortunately runs the world, they're pretty explicit, natural resources, biosphere, living things, they're outside of the box of what they look at. So yeah, we need viability because we want these enterprises to succeed. The more they succeed, the more they impact the society around them. That's the bottom line. So as Deborah was saying, if you're going for profit maximization, you're going like a scorched earth. And so John always emphasized eco-technic projects are also looking at the top line increase. And the top line is the health of the ecosystem, its beauty, its biomass, its diversity, you know. So if you couple that, you're actually running the world down if you only look at a bottom line, exactly. that you've got to be working at both levels. Yeah. yeah, and they now call it the triple pro, the triple P, people, planet, profit. But um, I wanted to also just kind of underscore something that you've said. And by the way, folks, this is something that a lot of 
very um, successful people do. So you might think of like uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Well, he had net jets that didn't work out. That actually went belly up. Um, we just saw that Virgin Galactic went belly up re recently. That's another Richard Branson project. But when they're talking about having these various corporate structures within an overriding um, corporation, it, you can have a, a brands that have trouble um, and it doesn't sink the whole corporation. So I just wanted to underscore that that's actually very, you know, done by a lot of very successful uh, business corporations. Okay, so longevity. And can I just add one thing about that John did, which was the value of natural, putting the value of nature in the projects. And Tony Juniper writes about this later. He saw bias for two as where the penny dropped for him the first time somebody had gone and tried to figure out what's the value of a wave, you know, to put a, a, some kind of a functional value as well as, you know, so I just want to say that that is part of that valuation uh, uh, process. And for those of you that don't know Tony Juniper, his latest book is co-authored with the King of England. So what's really amazing about you guys is that you have this enterprise that's driven by human capital, normal people doing extraordinary things, and yet you're attracting in these, you know, people that are amazed by what you've achieved. You know, you've got to, you know, rub elbows with Bucky uh, Fuller. You know, you got to, um, you've, you're publishing Tony Juniper. Um, Eden Project was inspired by Biosphere too, and that's right yeah. next to, you know, one of the Royal Manor Houses that we actually go to on our Brain Trust adventures. Um, but um, so you guys, let's talk a little bit about the capital behind this, because a lot of people say, oh, I would do this if I had enough money. Now, I know that a lot of what you do um, was just get in there and do it. But there was always a little piece of money involved. Even Synergia Ranch required buying the ranch. Um, Biosphere certainly required a lot more than that. So how do we talk about um, the capital raise and what John, whether, whether it was just John that was able to do, achieve this or what you guys have learned from John and now apply to your enterprise? Uh, let's see. I'll make a stab at that. Well, uh, you know, certainly every enterprise needs some seed capital, but we very much, uh, you know, wanted the managers to have economic incentives. So I think even before we knew the term sweat equity, the idea was, yeah, and we, we had different people who were able to do a seed capital and maybe buy, buy a pastoral lease or a freehold uh, conditional purchase in Australia. But then, you know, a group of, and we call ourselves synergists because we're trying to live that balanced life, uh, would go out and if the enterprise did well, then they did well. And as Deborah had mentioned, you know, we set up things to where people had a really good way of life and they weren't commuting they were living on site and usually building or, you know, we started off in, in tents and then hay bales in Australia until we built some proper housing, uh, you know, so so that that uh, integration of some seed capital with a group of people who are determined to make this thing work and yeah. they get rewarded by by its success, I think, is kind of the basic strategy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Great. Venture, joint ventures were uh, big words we used back in those days. Well, let's go make a joint venture with that guy over there, you know, and uh, uh, venture capital. Uh, a lot of that moving around in those days we talk about now, we talk about impact investment um and uh uh you know that that this new way uh that we're raising funds and trying to sell you know and and now we have things called pitch decks and uh it's just yeah. there's new tools to raise funding uh but land was the basic economic uh, incentive for the initial investments and the security of the investments too yeah and and it seems like that's what you're looking at for heraclitus right like you're open of course, you would like crowdfunding and money to come in that way, but um, potentially a joint venture, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We would love nothing more. Um, you know, uh, it's sea people, uh, training vessel. So uh, uh, we are open for expressions of interest from any uh, any sources. There's some amazing ocean tech technology that's coming. I've been in the process of kind of like collecting and, and uh, uh, capturing in... Uh, a, uh, a net, a vast net that I've been put it, putting out and we're just starting to put out uh, more largely and trying to work on some articles and some publications in, in, in magazines that can let people, more people know about who we are and what we're doing. It's been a challenge. Uh, we were most famous when there was no internet uh, back in the bias for two days. And there's only a certain number of people that are still alive that even know what that accomplishment was. So trying not to be the best kept secret in the universe and, um, making the connections and thanks to you natalie for helping to connect us in so many ways oh well i'm 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 happy to do my little part and god's willing it will go viral um okay so i'm mindful of our time and i'm also mindful that we may have someone who wants to ask you a question before we move on i just would like one last tip i actually have spoken with another one of your joint venture partners i won't name who it was and this person said something to me that i found very incredible she said uh, you don't have to like everybody that you work with, but you do have to believe that they will do their job. You have mm -hmm. to trust that they'll do their job. Yeah. Do you have anything to add about how the different personalities can come together and stay together as long as you guys have? I mean, there's a lot of you that are still pretty close and working on things. So what can you tell us about how you've how you've worked that, how that's come about. Doing theater productions together and group therapy. <laughs> theater is group therapy. You know, there's theater, theater on speech and, and there's theater in life. Yeah. And I, th I think that, you know, one of the secrets, you know, if you're doing uh, unusual things and, and sometimes you, you really have to bust the gut intellectually, emotionally, physically, we call that super effort. And, you know, without, you know, setting really challenging goals, that's one reason that, you know, people have uh, manifested more of their potential is ordinary life is like too easy. You know, you don't need to draw in those extra reserves. And, you know, we always didn't brandish it, but I, I, I'm, I'm okay with, I've written about it, I might as well talk about it. Kind of the unifying thing was an alliance on the overall aim. And, you know, yeah. if you're united in a, a sufficiently inspiring and, you know, you consider it important, then, you know, then it gives you a yardstick. Oh, you know, because people, you know, have chemistry, you know, you hang out with certain types of people, 
and other people just drive you up a tree, right? I mean, right. bias for two, it was very difficult. It was yeah. clearer there because that was our life support system. Right. And you know, so even when we were barely on speaking terms and the power struggle that was outside was polarizing us, Right. everyone was committed to bias for two, both functioning well, it was, it was our health, and yeah. producing as much research and inspiration as possible. So we worked flawlessly. And as Roy said, boy, sometimes I just hated those other people, but damn, we made a great team. And I think that's a really important thing in enterprise because, you know, that you have a friction with somebody, they may be the perfect person and have the right skill set to be part of that team. Yeah, got it. Uh, okay, so that did bring up one other thing and very, all of this is super valuable. The, the re, why did you put in the theater of infinite possibilities? And what do you think that the role of art can have in vision and creating great things? Well, good question. Um, so the theater of all possibilities um, was the name of uh, uh, an avant-garde theater touring, international touring theater company. Uh, that really gave a lot of experience. It was uh, many sources of inspiration from Brecht to uh, Stanislavski to the Living Theater in terms of, of getting on the stage. The idea is that all the world's a stage and that we're all merely players and that we need to be able to, um, and, and then by putting on dramas and plays and things that were original sometimes, or even from you know the classics, uh, that there's a certain kind of uh, there's that, that one could lead to social catharsis or change. Uh, the role of theater has kind of faded in the last decades. It's very hard now with all the other media to find live theater. There's a little bit of a renaissance going on. It's like independent book publishers. You know, you want to support them. So we'll go to see a theater piece every now and then. But, uh, you know, we're really uh, and they're becoming inventing, they're becoming more uh, installation art theater kind of pieces. Uh, we're working on something now that will become an art in theater installation, working with our archive here to take uh, elements from the past, John's talks, his words and things like that. And they're making a digital avatar of him, you know, that's going to be projectable. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, does life imitate art? Is my life... It, it's, it's really, uh, what is Stanislavski wrote, my life in, uh, it's not my life in art, my, uh, uh, it's uh, our, our life in art, basically, that life itself can, is a work of art, and that we have the, the age of Aquarius we're in right now, which is basically where art and science are, are one. All of the above, and also to be an actor, <clears throat> you need to learn to use your voice, use your body, tap into your emotions, learn the history of it. And it's kind of a, you know, some people, and I think it's a great tribute to John, say Bias for Two, that was Johnny Dolphin's, you know, greatest masterpiece theater piece. And it was, <laughs> theater. you know, learning how to deal with the media, learning, you know, it's kind of seamless. Uh, I really yeah. encourage, you know, that I think we're all impoverished by, segregating artists and business people Absolutely. and scientists separately you know we we have all of that in us and and we need to tap that you look at really good business people and they're showmen they know how to put on a, a stage show and and you don't do a solo show 
theater also teaches you to work with an ensemble. Mm -hmm. I, I would it. say that to, today's industry and, and business and everything has become much more interdisciplinary in general. There was no interdisciplinary stuff going on in 1984 when we started this project. I mean, it was uh, uh, language barriers between you know engineers and ecologists, and and it's taken decades for that to develop. So uh, the interdisciplinary nature is key. I think uh, in our case, theater was, and it is, we still continue as artists in different ways. Uh, uh, it's key, I think, to a balanced life. And, and what drew me in from John, my, my first meeting with John was that he was giving talks at this conference and he was talking about ideas about that one could actually observe themselves and work on themselves and, and become real. And yeah. all I knew was that the world that I was in, which was from Illinois, suburbia, uh, there was something that was lacking. So I just went out looking. And then when I ran into this group of, of individuals united in the hope of the impossible, it was, it was gold. I love it. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to push pause so that, uh, you know, if anybody would like to ask a question, they can, I know that. Okay, so I'm going to give uh, Mark the floor so that he can um, he can share whatever it is that he's interested in sharing to conclude. All right, uh, to people unknown, but I guess if you're connected with Natalie, you've got something on the ball. I, I would just say or repeat something that we learned in Bias for Two. There are no small actions. Everything that we do, you know, has an impact, you know, what I loved about a small system is it's like a boomerang. Things come back really quickly and, you know, take some chances, you know, try something new. And I think you will never lose if you think about the big picture while paying attention to details. And the big picture is you are a biospheric. You are part of the problem and you are part of the solution if there is one. I think that's very powerful. Okay, Deborah, it's going to be all about you now. For me, it was getting that first image of what a biosphere was. When I started to do the biosphere catalog, I looked at all of those different levels, uh, those layers of life and what's involved and um, understanding how the atmosphere, what's the relationship with the soil and the atmosphere, what's the relationship between water and soil, water and atmosphere, and just, just starting to understand that there is an interrelationship, that everything, that this is a, a self-sustaining co-evolutionary life support system that we have here in the biosphere of earth. It's our one home and it is, there is, there is no away. So we have to learn how to put a value on nature and put that on our corporate balance sheets and to take care of all of our waste products and use them and turn them into materials and resource. So that innovation uh, and, and to um, uh, find a value that uh, recognize that it recognizes that we should not be just monetizing the planet. Uh, we need to put a value for nature and nature has rights. And there's a lot of efforts in this way, but it is a uh, uh, very difficult against the the world market that is driving our fueling our, our our system of life on this planet. But we can be the change, and it's if not us, then who? Thank you to Mark Nelson. Thank you to Deborah Parrish Schneider. Um, thank you to the entire 
Synergia Ranch and all of their various enterprises, um, Chile and London. Um, you guys are a huge inspiration for all of us. And I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, so that all of us, there's no limit. We, I mean, it's not just these people, extraordinary individuals who have a patent on doing great things and having a, a, a strong vision attached to it and doing a lot with, with almost nothing. Anybody can do this. It just requires courage, bravery, vision, educating yourself on what's really going on. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I can think of a couple of examples. You know, we, we flush our toilet for our waste, but Mark has actually lived in a system where his waste had to be returned into drinking water and he did it with plants. And that, by the way, is more uh it's less expensive it's be more beautiful it's uh more ecological and a lot of places not just you know in remote places i mean certainly if you have um you know your own off-grid property you should be looking at this but even as one of deborah's more recent books regenerative landscaping it doesn't mean that you have to um recycle your own toilets. But learning about these possibilities is going to change everything. Instead of you being this thing that is rapacious towards our home planet, your little spot can be the thing that inspires your neighbors to have that native regenerative uh, approach. And then as a collective unit, we can solve the bigger problems, right? So I just encourage you to be very inspired by them. You can actually visit Synergia Ranch. You can obviously go and buy the books, um, buy, you know, John uh, Polk Allen's, um, his own biography, his autobiography. Um, learn you know, and learn from Mark's uh, experiences that he's documented in Life Under Glass and also the Wastewater Gardener. Um, so you're getting 20% off. And also this is a great education. Honestly, I'm gonna tell you a secret. When I went first to go visit this group, I was so stunned by what they had achieved and that I didn't even know about it. Why didn't I know about it? And why is it that people refer to this group as a cult instead of honoring their achievements, right? Not everybody does, by the way. The King of England certainly doesn't. Tony Juniper certainly doesn't. Bucky, you know, uh, Buckminster Fuller didn't. You know, so uh, there's certainly a lot of people who truly honor what they do. But why is it that the mainstream group think, you know, if you if you put in John Polk Allen, you might get that in there? And I was stunned, and I really had to dig beneath the surface to see what was going on and to kick the dirt on what these projects are doing. And they are they're extraordinary. And in and there's so much that we can learn from you guys. So I want to thank you again for sharing your wisdom with us. I encourage everybody to go and Google Synergy or Ranch. Um, I'm going to be on youtube.com forward slash Natalie Pace, including a great deal of links, including a link where you can get that 20% off on the books that Deborah is offering through uh, Synergetic Press. And get involved with this group because they, you know, 
Johnny is still alive. He's 95. I'm not saying if you go visit Synergy Ranch that you get to meet him, but I'm just saying there you did. I did. I did. And it was extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, go and visit them, go set up a, a retreat for your friends, have a family reunion there. How, how much can you learn from Mark and Deborah and maybe even just shaking John's hand? You know, how much can you learn and how, what kind of a, a great family reunion or a group reunion or offsite for your um, businesses? You know, this could be really great. So I want to thank you guys again. I encourage everybody to dig deeper on Synergy Ranch and uh, again, to look at some of those links that we'll be providing for you. So again, all of this is going to be available at youtube.com forward slash Natalie Pace. Um, if you're watching this months from now, we actually did this on leap year 2024. So February 29th, 2024. So if you're That's watching right. it in April and you have um, a more difficult time finding it on the YouTube channel, just email us info at nataliepace.com and say, hey, I really want to see this Synergy or Ranch. I want to know more about Mark Nelson and Deborah. Snyder and uh, John Polk Allen and all Biosperians and all the all these things, we will get you the link. Uh, you can also phone us 310-430-2397. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, let us know what great you. achievements you create. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>